Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. You may now use all your electronic devices and your laptop. just jump right in this morning. We're in a series called Altitude Adjustment. Uh, and uh, this is uh, kind of the, the description of this is what it looks like when we begin to live in this world uh, with a new heart that God has given us, when we begin to uh, live out the kingdom of God in our everyday life and instead of living as the world. And uh, and so we, we gave a warning last week, and you should have received an email if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, then you, you picked a, a, a doozy of a section of scripture. It's not my fault. It comes in the, uh, in the ways of scripture. And so we're going to be uh, talking this morning as we continue this series in the Sermon on the Mount uh, about lust and adultery and our sexuality. And so... Uh, we, we're dealing with some subjects that really clash completely with uh, culture. Uh, and in fact, there's really no way that I could cover all of this in one message. And so, although it's pretty packed full and we went a little bit long first service, um, but uh, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to separate this out. We're going to talk about this this week, and then next week we're going to cover... Um, uh, uh, divorce and remarriage and all of that fun stuff. I should have brought two shirts because after sweating through my first shirt in first service, uh, I could have changed shirts. When I'm done with this, I'm going to go home and take a nap. Uh, I had uh, two of our staff members in staff meeting this week. Uh, it was like the, you know, the, the devil and the angel on your shoulder. And one was like, uh, you need to really stay on your notes this week. And then the other one was like, I really hope you go off of your notes uh, this week because who knows what you're going to say. Um, I won't tell you which one they are. Yeah, some of you already know who they are. Um, we're going to touch on some things today that are going to touch on some areas that might still need some healing in your life. And some areas that Jesus maybe wants to shine some light on. And, and I know that while we're talking about all of this, there can be an uncomfortableness that comes along with it. And I've even heard the question, you know, posed, like, why are we talking about this in church? And my response to that is, why is everybody else in the world talking about this and not the church? We can, when we leave here today, we can go into stores or restaurants and we will hear music about the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. You know, when we could go to the movie theaters, we would go and sit in a, uh, in a movie theater and have some popcorn in a room full of strangers and watch what I'm talking about today on the screen. So why are we okay with that, but we're uncomfortable with it in the context of church. I think the church has been comparatively 
too silent about it. And I think because it has, what's happened is, is it's caused some confusion and it's caused us to uh, really do a disservice to the culture around us. Now, oftentimes what I'll say uh, when I'm preaching is I say, I wanna, want us to have a conversation about something and then I proceed to speak at you for 30 minutes. Uh, which is not a conversation, but I, I just want to remind you this morning that today's message is not a conversation. There's no questions being posed at me today. It's not Love Line with Ryan Coffee or uh, any of those things. It's, it's just, I, I recognize that this is a one-way setting and that a topic as difficult as this can be challenging in a one-way setting. And so if you do have questions, is if there is stuff that arise out of this message today, I totally invite you to uh, email us and ask the questions. In fact, if you do want to do that, you can email us at j at lifehousesa.com. He'll be happy to answer all your questions for you in regard to this. Paul says to Timothy, in light of all of this, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And so my commitment to you today and next week is to be prayerful. I mean, I'm always prayerful, but to really be like prayerful and to be diligent in my approach because we want to hear from the scriptures don't we? we? We want to hear, we want the scriptures to come alive to us. We want to hear what the scriptures have to say about sex and our sexuality. And we're going to be dealing with a, an issue this morning that, that may be an issue that has caused more pain or has more pain surrounding it than anything else in our culture. And that the byproduct of this is, is destroyed many lives. It's destroyed marriages even. And so I want, I want to take as pastoral of an approach as possible to this difficult subject, but I also want to hit it head on. And I want us to, to really allow Jesus to bring some freedom to us this morning. And, and, I, and I believe that the scripture want to invite, wants to invite us to live out the kingdom of God in our everyday life in such a way that we begin to be salt and light to the world around us. So I want us to pray as we have the last couple of weeks. I want us to just take a moment and prepare our hearts and pray and ask that God would invade this, this space in our hearts, if you will. Invade this part of our life where uh, we are al allowing God to move and uncover and scratch at some of the things that, that he wants to do. Can we do that? Can we just bow our heads this morning and, and pray? Lord, we we want to receive your conviction this morning because we recognize that when we receive your conviction, we can lead in this world in a better way. But God, I pray that, that we would also be able to discern the difference between the spirit of conviction and the spirit of condemnation. And Lord, that we wouldn't be a people who who feel your feel any sort of condemnation that's really from the enemy of our soul who comes to steal and kill and destroy and and so lord can we just receive your conviction this morning lord i i pray that all of us and everyone watching online would align our hearts to your ways to move in line with your spirit 
as you lead us out of some of these things that have caused death in our life, and they bring us to a place of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So I took some time to think about what I learned in the church about this subject. I grew up in the church. I uh, was really born into the church. I've been a part of more church services than most people in this room. Uh, you know, granted, there are people who are much older than me, but, uh, but I, don't miss, I haven't missed church from the time I was born and I was put into the nursery till now. I've either been leading it or attending it, and I have heard a lot of sermons. I've heard a lot of, of youth group messages. I've been to a lot of church camps, and and I was trying to think of what is it that I learned in the church about this subject. And to my knowledge, really the strongest message that I heard growing up was simply, stop it. Don't do it. It's bad. I heard an illustration uh, that it's like fire in the fireplace. Like Sex is like fire in a fireplace. Fire in a fireplace is warm and it's inviting. But if it gets into the walls and burns the house down, it's destructive. Don't play with fire. Those are the kinds of things that you hear in the context of church. And as an adult, looking back, I realized just how much our parents and, and the church has avoided this topic. And I was thinking, you know, it, my dad, he did the best that he could. And I, I, I love my parents. I'm really glad they're not here this morning uh, and watching online. Uh, but they did their best. And, and, you know, I remember my dad taking me on a trip to the coast, the Oregon coast, and, and, uh, and listening and, and him putting in some cassette tapes that we were to listen to. And it was just weird and awkward, and uncomfortable, and, and, he, and he did his best. And I always thought to myself, you know, I'm going to do so much better than my dad did. I'm going to be honest, you know, and, and I'm gonna, this is just going to be completely forthright with our kids. And, and then I became a parent, and I realized just how uncomfortable this is to talk with our own children. And yet I think we can all agree that we do a disservice, that there is a disservice that has been done when we don't bring our children, people around us back to the Scripture and say, what does Scripture talk about this? Because if we don't, it breeds confusion and ambiguity. And that's why we live in the culture that we live in today. As Christ followers, we actually have the ability to stand on some pretty strong foundational moorings, if you will. Like we have the ability that when we look at Scripture and if we're willing to trust Scripture, it brings freedom. It brings restoration to our soul. And, and then what happens is, is when we begin to live that out in this world, we actually can be salt and light in the world that we are part of. Now, the scripture does make it clear, however, that we are not to point a finger of judgment in the world in which we live, that we're not supposed to be condemning of the world. When the world doesn't act like a Christian, we're, we shouldn't be surprised by that. When, when, when the world is living consistently with their values, we should not be surprised by that. But when Christ's followers 
don't walk in the way according to Scripture, when, when we don't live out our values, there's a distortion, there's a confusion that takes place. And I believe that destruction can happen because of it. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I don't judge the world. No, no I'm judging the church. He said, I'm not worried about the mess that's going on in the world. God's going to take care of that. I'm, I'm judging the mess that's going on within the church. And in 1 Corinthians and 1 and 2 Corinthians and the Corinthian church, he had a mess on his hands within the church. And I'm wondering how much we've allowed the mess of the world to creep into the church. I want us to jump in and just name some of the challenges that we're facing. And I, I give you these numbers and these, these challenges not to somehow glorify them in any way, but, but to give us the knowledge and the information to pull us out of a little bit of ignorance that might exist among us. One in four hits on the internet deal with pornography. The average 10-year-old boy, 99% of 10-year-old boys have been exposed to hardcore pornography. Ted Roberts says it like this. He says, pornography is like a heat-seeking missile. You don't have to look for it. It's looking for you. So is it even possible that in a world like this, is it even possible for us to live free in our heart when it's really kind of impossible for us to go through this life just like this, right? I mean, we, it's like we can't just keep our eyes completely covered all of the time. Well, is it even possible for us to, to get through this life unscathed? You know, it's interesting. I, I discovered this last week that there was a sect of Pharisees, religious leaders that were called the bleeding Pharisees. It's because they didn't, because of the law, they didn't want to look at women wrongly. And so they covered their eyes and they just ran into things all the time and they were bleeding all the time. Well, we can't do that, obviously. We can't, we can't just keep our eyes covered. So what do we do? There, there's a secular book called Premarital Sex in America, How Young Americans Meet, Mate, and Marry. And it's this secular research that's done. And what it's finding is that maybe the way of Jesus is actually right. Now, they don't say that. But all of the discovery is that, that living out our life in the way according to Christ is actually more beneficial than how things are going. It says that because of pornography, young people are treating one another like objects rather than people. And the idea of dating and romance is becoming a thing of the past. It's diminished the desire to be married, that young people would rather not deal with the mess of a real relationship. That's what secular research is showing us, and we can be reminded of the fact that it's not working. So the question we should be asking is, why? On a fundamental human level, why is there such a market for this? Why is there a 97, and it's probably more than that now through the pandemic, billion-dollar industry called pornography? The answer is really quite simple. It's because you and I, as human beings, we were designed for intimacy. We long for it. 
It's actually wired into the fabric and into the fiber of our beings. That there's, there's really no person that walks the face of this earth that doesn't long for intimacy in their life. You can go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you will begin to see this. In fact, Adam, the very first time, I don't know, this is just a little side note. The very first time that Adam sees Eve naked. There's a scripture that, that says what he says, and we typically read it in kind of this scholarly way where he says, as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman. When in reality, Adam, when he sees Eve for the first time, he breaks out into song. Like he's singing those words over, not the lyrics I would sing, in that circumstance, mine would have been like, hallelujah, you know, something along those lines. But he's like breaking out into song because there's something, it's okay to laugh. I'm going to need you to laugh a little bit today uh, because it's going to get pretty serious here. So Adam and Eve were wired to do life together and sin fractured that. And instead of being naked and unashamed, they're hiding and covering themselves. That originally they were designed to walk with one another. It's, to, it's wired into the DNA of, the, of being human. Nobody, ex, nobody escapes it. But when those desires go sideways, when those good God-given desires are distorted, what happens is we start using what God intends for intimacy... And we start turning it on ourselves and start using it for gratification. But the desire is still there and the desire is still good. See, God's design for intimacy is carried by our desires. The desires are, are part of what makes us human. It's not even necessarily our, our sexual drive that makes us human, but it's our drive for intimacy it's our longing to be known, to, to be valued, to be loved. And so what happens when a, a good God-given desire gets distorted? What happens when it gets off the rails a little bit and, and it goes wrong? One of the enemy's greatest tactics in our life is to take what God designed for good and turn it for evil. What happens when our soul gets unhealthy? Maybe we could put it that way. What happens when our heart gets sick? What happens is, is we turn love into lust and people into objects. And Jesus has some pretty strong feelings about this. And so I want us to engage this morning without any sort of voice of condemnation, but with an invitation to conviction. Let's start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's what Jesus is saying is you've heard a certain sexual ethic that's been taught to you. And where did they hear it? Well, they heard it in the law. They heard it in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to stumble, I want you to gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's intense. 
Like, if you're listening to this at home, like, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a lot. It's a lot to embrace. And since, you know, we want to just punish ourselves some more, it goes on and it says, as Ben said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm definitely bringing two shirts next week when we discuss that. We're going to address that, and uh, I think rightly so, because what's happening here is Jesus is putting that directly after this information on lust and his teaching on lust and his teaching on adultery because he recognizes that if this isn't addressed, it'll lead to this. How many of you ever seen uh, a picture of an iceberg in the water? I mean, we've all, if you've ever seen like a leadership picture or anything along those lines, it looks like this. And, uh, and the picture is always kind of this uh, depiction of, of, you know, how you can only see something, uh, only see so much on the surface. And I think that uh, in the context of, uh, in the context of, of Jesus's statements uh, where he, he's saying, you have heard it said, these you have heard it said statements, that this is a great picture of that. Uh, I, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. And really that would be kind of the top of the iceberg. It's the uh, adultery would be the thing that you can see. It's relatively easy to check the box whether you have or you haven't done that. But what Jesus is saying is, I want to get beneath the surface. I want to get a little deeper into that. That Remember last week if, when we were t- speaking about anger, or uh, was it last week or a couple weeks ago, we, we were talking about how uh, loving your neighbor is, you know, the baseline of that, the, the top of the iceberg is you don't murder them. Like, let's just not murder our neighbor. That's the baseline of loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? But, but let's go deeper than that. And that's what Jesus is really doing here is he's saying, let's get to the heart of what's going on, to the root of what often leads us to a place. He's, he's wanting transformation to take place in our heart. And, and he wants to get to the reason that anybody would ever want to commit adultery, and he goes, there's something going on in your heart, in your life, that there's something beneath the surface. Let's talk about that thing. Let's not just talk about the behavior. Let's, let's not just do some behavior modification. Let's really address the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says it well. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And then in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus is speaking again. He says, for out of the heart... Jesus says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So there's something about the rootedness in our heart of what God wants to get to. And what Jesus is saying to these men as they're listening to him is he's saying, I want to get deeper than just let's not commit adultery. He wants to, head, he wants to address these things head on. So as we did last week, I want us to to take a look at what Jesus is not saying. Here's what Jesus is not saying. And honestly, churches and Christianity at times throughout seasons of history have kind of got this wrong. Kind of of really 
taken it to some pretty strange places, if we're being honest. And the first thing that Jesus is not teaching is that our sexuality is bad. He's He's not teaching that sexuality is wrong. He's not. In fact, God is the designer of our sexuality. He's saying, God would say to us, that was my idea. I wired that into you. I created you for sex, and you're welcome. Jesus is not saying our sexuality is wrong. It's God's design. In fact, God is, is not anti-sex. And I think there's kind of this perception that, that in Christianity that God is somehow anti-sex. He's the most pro-sex being in the universe. He created it. He designed it. Jesus is not saying that an acknowledgement of beauty is wrong. There are some people who are just really physically attractive. You're welcome. You know, there's, oh, come on, that was a joke. You guys didn't laugh. You laughed at the other one. You didn't laugh at that. That was by far the funniest joke I told. Do you know that, that physical attraction, physical beauty is actually cultural? What we find Beautiful or what we find attractive is very different than what other cultures find attractive. In fact, in some cultures, what you'll find is that ankles are the things of attraction. And if there's an uncovered ankle, whoo, baby. And it, like, if they're not wearing socks, and, and I guess my question to you this morning is, how, when was the last time you looked at a pair of ankles and had to pluck your eye out? Probably not. Probably never. Because ankles for us are... You know, they're kind of bony and ugly. But in some cultures, you know, cutting the hand off. Jesus says, listen, we were all created in the image of God, and acknowledging beauty in another person is not wrong. It's not wrong. Now, it might get you in trouble with your wife, but it's not a sin issue. And thirdly, he's not saying that temptation is sin. In the book of James, James makes this very clear. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, desire that's gone wrong and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Certainly temptation can lead to sin, but it doesn't always. In fact, the scriptures are very clear that that to say that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. That's in Hebrews chapter 4. So that initial attraction, that that physical beauty, that desire for another person can be stopped at the point without it becoming sin. So here's the question. What is Jesus saying? Let's look at what he says. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the NIV version, and I think the ESV gets a little closer to what's going on in the original Greek. And it says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There are three words that drive what's going on in this part of the text. The first word is the word look. There's multiple words for look in the Greek, uh, in the Greek language. The word that Jesus uses means to look with the intention of holding on. It's, it's, you could almost picture it as, as a tracing of someone's body, physical body with your eyes. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not just to, to see, but to look and to hold on and to trace. 
There's another word in the Greek. It's the word pros. It's a casual statement. It means to look with the intention to. It's a really important part of what Jesus is teaching. He's talking about a, a choice that someone makes to look and to trace with the intention to. And then he uses the word lust. And the word lust has kind of become a church word to be honest, because we don't hear it anymore in our culture. It's a compound word meaning to hold on to or to imagine, or you could even translate it to focus on. You could say it like this, there's lust versus seduction, that lust is looking with intent. Seduction is intentionally trying to draw a lustful look, both not okay. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, no one should take advantage of a brother or sister. And, and in saying that, he's really saying, I'm responsible for my moral conduct, but I'm also responsible for how I affect your moral conduct. It's not a popular statement these days. Say, how you look at each other really has the potential to affect our souls. The second part of that compound word is with passionate desire. And so Jesus' terminology here, when a man lusts, lusts after a woman, he takes the mystery of personhood and reduces her to a consumer item. Covets her as a thing rather than a person. Now, here in the text, Jesus is talking uniquely and specifically to a group of men. And so we're going to teach it as such, but I, I think I can't not move forward without saying that pornography and lust is not just a male issue. And in fact, I think that even more recently in our culture, it's become more and more of a female issue in our day. I don't know if that would have changed the way Jesus taught this, if he were teaching it today, but he teaches it uniquely to men in this situation, and we want to stay true to the text. What's going on here is not only that your desire is getting off track, but a God-given imagination that we all have. Now, God gives us this beautiful imagination, and it's because of the creative nature of our imagination that we, have, that we put people on the moon. Uh, it's because of the, our creative imagination that we have uh, iPhones and computers, and, and there's something so amazing about our imagination, and yet it's also, however good and God-given that imagination is, it can actually lead to some pretty dark spots too. And Jesus is saying we need to be aware of this, that it's not just in the looking, but it's also in the imagination, it's a heart that gets unhealthy or fractured by, by sin. And, and we have this distorted desire. And then instead of loving somebody, we lust after them. And it's and sort of identify, instead of in identifying them as a, a gift of God and carrying the image of God, we objectify them and use them for our own gratification. But underneath all of that is this longing for intimacy. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He says, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel, brothel is really looking for God. That's the longing. That's what's underneath. 
There's a highly recommended book if you want to look into it further, if this is an ongoing struggle with you. It's by Michael Cusick. You could just write that down called Surfing for God. And he plays off of this idea that there's something that is drawing us and it's not just the physical. It's something of intimacy that we desire. We live in a a day and age, in a culture, in a time where we couldn't be on more different pages than what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says we are to war against lust and our culture says just go with it. It's not a big deal. And that's identified by the reality that you can't find somebody outside of a church circle or outside of a Christian circle that even talks about the damage that lust causes in the lives of people. When you even bring up the subject, they look at you like you've got an arm growing out of your head. It's not a part of our public discourse anymore. So how do we get there? How how do we get here? Well, if you look back, I mean, I I think if, if we were to be honest, if you go back 50, 60 years, it's not that our desires have changed, but we would all agree for the most part, that, that, that there, we would agree in what's right and what's wrong. And then in the 1960s, we had what was called a sexual revolution. It was a movement of free love. The mantra of the sexual revolution was to do whatever you want with whomever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But I don't think they, I'm going to say they because I'm not a part of that. I don't think they stopped long enough to recognize whether or not they were hurting themselves. And what kind of cause and effect that would have down the road. Because now, today, fast forward 40 years or so, what you find is we find things that are integrated into our everyday life. Things that we would probably laugh at even today. You have things like... Uh, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, or you have the ESPN um, Body Edition. And, it, and it's really just soft porn. It's, it's like a, it's a gateway drug, if you will. You fast forward to today into our culture, and we have some of the most top-rated series on Netflix and HBO and Showtime. And I'm not going to give the names of them because I'm not trying to heap guilt, but some of the most top-rated shows are really just pornography with a better storyline. And I'm not trying to heap guilt, just point out how desensitized we've become and how much we've allowed the mess of the world to infiltrate the church. Everybody take a deep breath. We're going to go a little deeper. There was an article written a while back in Vanity Fair magazine. um, And the title of the article was Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. The subtitle was, as romance gets swiped from the screen, some 20-somethings aren't liking what they see. There's a few of some of the quotes for the, from the people in that article. One response was, with these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you could swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. 
One guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win women over, but then they start wanting me to care more and I just don't. See, what's happened in our society, in our culture, is that we've equated love with lust. But listen to the way scriptures really define love, and I think it's important for us, and it'll be very familiar to probably most of us in this room. It's one of the most common scriptures in reference to love. I use it all of the time at weddings, and I just want you to hear it in this context, that love, not lust, love is patient, meaning it's not immediate. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It's not self-seeking, which means it's not about me. And most of what you read in that article is, it's about me, it's about me, it's about my wants, it's about my needs, it's about what I can get out of this. And if you get underneath it all, it's all crying out for me goes on to say, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Here's the core human problem that Jesus is addressing. That we use what God intends us to love, and we love what God intends us to use. Think about that for a moment. I'll just say it again, that that we use what God designed to be loved and we love the stuff, the physical possessions. We're patient with those. We're kind with those. We keep no records of wrongs with those, but but we use the the, the people that he intended us to love. That's not unique to me. I've had a lot of help with the the message today. What Jesus is pushing back against, because remember, all of this is in the context of how do we actually live out the kingdom of God in this world? How do we live life under the rule of, of in the reign of Jesus. Jesus is saying that it's impossible to live in his kingdom. It's impossible to live with him as ruler over our life when we objectify his creation, his humanity. It's impossible to live in the kingdom of God when we objectify his creation. We are starting, I think, to see some cracks in some of this. I think that people are speaking out more and speaking up more about some of this. But we've got to start addressing this at a very heart level. This isn't about how do we change our behavior. This is not how we stop posting things on the internet or uh, or whatever. This is at the core a heart level issue. I think maybe the theme song for the rising generation is that I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try. I've tried everything and I can't get no satisfaction. The reason is because those desires... We're designed to be challenged in one direction, and we have gotten so completely off the rails in this subject that it's actually affecting the satisfaction of our young people and what it means to be in a marriage relationship. Jesus has strong words for this in his next section, which we'll get to in just a moment. He describes that 
reality, the heart that is consumed with lust, is actually as hell or Gehenna. If you've been in the position where you're actively fighting against lust and you don't seem to be winning that battle, Jesus' words actually ring true to your life. You're like, this is like hell. It's like a fire on the inside that I just can't put out. And we're waging war on our souls and then we're winning or I guess losing depending on how you look at it. And if we say, okay, I agree with that in theory, but what do we do about it? How do we address this in our current context? Well, Jesus gives us the instruction. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of the body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. So all of the, you that are watching online uh, with us this morning are going to be super happy that you stayed home because after the service, we're going to have uh, eyes gouged out and hands cut off in the welcome center. Right, I, I noticed as people came in here this morning that everybody had... I mean, for the most part, I think, I didn't check everybody, but everybody's got their eyes. Everybody's got their hands. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he speaking very, very, like, specific? Is he saying that this is literal, that we have to, if we look at somebody, we have to go have operation on our eye and pull it out? How many of you have ever heard somebody ask you the question, do we, we should take, or, or give you the statement, we should take the Bible literally? Did they have both of their eyes when they asked you, like, you know, when they told you that? Did, did they have both their hands when they told you we should take, take the scriptures literally? Now, Proverbs 5.19 says, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may your breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. So when people ask me, do you take the Bible literally? I say, I do that verse. I think it's better for us to say, maybe not that we read the Bible literally, but we read the Bible intelligently. Intelligently. We try to figure out what is it that Jesus is actually saying here, because certainly he's not saying that if we look lustfully at a woman, we have to gouge out the eye. What he's saying is, is he's saying if you could address lust just by tackling physical things, then you need to just pluck out your eye. Like if you could just address this, this problem of the heart with a physical response, he's saying you just all you have to do is cut off your hand. But it's not really what, what, what he's saying. It's a it's Hebrew idiom where you can read it again in Matthew chapter 18. And, and I would imagine he kind of sort of is chuckling as he's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying to them, you have both of your hands. You have your eyes. Obviously, this didn't work because the problem is on the inside. The problem is deeper. You know, you can just cut it off, but it's probably not going to solve the problem. I think the bigger question is, how do we become the kind of people who are free from lust? What does it look like for us to live in the way of Jesus and have the heart of Jesus in this world that we are a part of? Because Jesus is for freedom. Jesus is for intimacy. Jesus is for the value of all people. Jesus is for healthy, vibrant, life-giving sexuality, not the cheap substitute that we often settle for.
If we read this and we say, well, the goal of this scripture is to avoid adultery, I would push back and say that's not Jesus' goal. If we read this and say the goal is to just not lust, that's, that's really not what he's saying. In fact, how many of you would just, you know, say my game plan to not lust is to just not do it? Right? The, how many of you would say it's just really hard to just in our own willpower not lust? I've never met anybody that's just white-knuckled this thing and been so successful. I have met people who have had a miraculous work done in their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? What, what do we do when stop it or don't, don't do it, doesn't seem to be cut, cutting it? Because everything flows from the heart. But let's step back and ask the question, how do we shape or form our heart so that what flows out of it is the life that we long for. Now, I recognize that this is a struggle for many people. Statistically, in this room and everyone watching online, this is a struggle for people. So I'm just asking that as we finish up this morning, I've got four semi-quick points, that you'll allow me into your life a little bit, and without guilt and without shame, Because that's what the enemy wants. He wants to bring shame. He wants to heap that down over your life. But without those things, let's just enter these next few moments with a sense of conviction and say, Jesus, what do you want to kind of poke and prod at in my life, in my heart, in my soul to lead me forward? Here's what it looks like. I think to fight for our heart, because that's what Jesus is saying that we should take seriously. We've got to first admit that in some ways, all of us are sexually broken. This isn't a unique thing for some people. This is a a human reality in a broken world. Now, it comes out in different ways, but we all carry wounds, and we have to be more aware of what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. I've heard the argument that says, well, it's... It's just a physical thing. You know, that was the argument of the sexual revolution in the 60s. It was, it was like, this is, doesn't harm anybody. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's just physical. And can I tell you this morning that it's not? It's not just physical. I know this because, I, and I'm not trying to make any other point other than just stating that there is something deeper when it comes to sexual things. Can can we just admit that even sexual sin is different than most other sin? I'm not saying that it's, it's higher in its badness when we're talking about heaven and hell. I'm saying that it's different. And I know this because when it... When it comes to things like those who are victims of rape, and I know that's a touchy subject. If it was just a physical thing, we could just say, well, just expose the person and and just get over it. Get arrested and, and just be done with it. But we all know that that's not possible. We all know that you don't just get over it. Why do those who have been victimized as children in a sexual way, why does it scar them to the point that it affects even generations? Because it's not just physical. 
It's spiritual. It's emotional. And it's in our sexuality that people just don't get over it. We've got to become aware that there's probably some things from our past and there's probably some things even from now in our present that bring about some semblance of brokenness in our life. We've got to bring those things to God. Instead of just, as Jeremiah 2.13 says, digging cisterns that won't hold water, we've got to bring our brokenness to him. We sang about that this morning, that, that our hope is in Jesus. Like That's where victory comes from. That's where freedom comes from. Can I just tell you this morning that he can handle your brokenness. He can handle it. As dark as it is, as painful as it is, he is our creator. He is God. He can handle it. Anytime I've ever been in a counseling appointment and, I, and the person in my office begins with a statement, I'm about to tell you something that I've never told anyone before. I get excited about that. Because I know that that is the first step towards victory in their life. It's the first step. And all healing comes through honesty. And there has to be a willingness to bring our brokenness, first to admit that we have brokenness, but then to bring our brokenness to him. Second, here's what the scriptures teach. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, Paul's writing to a church. That's, they're just jacked up. They're made up of people who are coming out of like cultic practices, cultic prostitution, religious, these religious practices. And interestingly, almost every cult from the beginning of time has some sort of sexual exploitation in it. When it's a cult, when, I mean, think about it. you got the David Koresh's, and I, don't, I can't think of all the cults, but there's a lot of them out there. They always end up with some sort of exploitation, oftentimes, of women. So not just, not just a problem then, but even now, there's this sexual perversion that can often be misguided when we don't flee from sexual immorality. And in this case, Paul is addressing just a group of people who had served as prostitutes in the temples to the pagan gods. And, and you had people who would visit the prostitutes in the temples to the pagan gods. And now all of a sudden they're called the church. And he's addressing the church who have been a part of all of that and saying, I'm commanding you to flee from sexual immorality. And all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, he says, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought with a price. Therefore, honor your God, honor God with your bodies. For some people to flee Sexual immorality today may mean that you have to get some sort of monitoring software in your digital devices or in your home, or maybe you need to just get rid of stuff altogether. Maybe some of you who thought it was actually smart to buy a smartphone are now rethinking that, and maybe the smartest thing you could ever do is have a dumb phone. Martin Luther said it like this. He says, you're not going to be able to keep the birds from flying over your head but you can't keep them from building a nest in your hair. But then I saw this picture and I thought, well, is that really true? I don't, I don't know. But 
I needed a break. All right. Third, here's what we do. We cultivate healthy intimacy. If you're married, and this is a tricky one because of some relationships and some circumstances, but I want to give you the truth of what God's word says. If you're married, the Bible commands you to have sex with your husband or your wife. If you're married, it's a command. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, Paul would say, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So, you know, if you're withholding, then it's because of prayer. And then he gives a reason for not depriving each other so that Satan will not, attempt, uh, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He knows this pretty well, doesn't he? The scriptures are saying, just know that what you do with your physical body has an influence on your spiritual life, number one. And know that when you're deeply satisfied in a relationship with your spouse, the devil has less room. I'm not saying he doesn't have the ability to bring temptation into your life, but there is less room for attack. So part of your practice may be to have more sex if you're married. Kind of anticipated a little bit of an amen there, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll lower my expectations, I guess. But also recognize that within this passage, the enemy attacks us when we're weakest. My guess is, is if you're married, the time that you're most tempted is when you're fighting with your spouse. If you're single, the time that you're most tempted is when you're struggling with loneliness. The desire to want to be married or to have somebody that you sh- to share that with. And, and to single people in the room, I would just say the same thing applies cultivate healthy intimacy. You could look at it like this, admire versus desire, that friendship is the basis for a healthy marriage. Timothy Keller said it like this, he said, marriage is a journey of friendship that's garnished by sex and romance. And when you can relate and know someone without the, the pressure and the expectation of the sexual aspect of your life, it forces you to talk and to learn and to become friends. You establish something deeper, and our culture, unfortunately, has got this completely backwards. We live in a culture that says, let's have sex, and if it's good enough, then maybe we'll become friends. Finally, and I think the most important one, is that the best thing we can do to keep our soul healthy is worship. The best thing that we can do to fight against lust is to remember who Jesus is and to discipline your soul to worship him. Ironically, in first service, because we were short on time, uh, I said, but we're not going to do that at the end of service. We are going to do that now, you know, during this service because we have a little bit more time. The scripture clearly says we love because he first loved us in 1 John 4, 19. If you want to love God more, remember his love for you. You are a child of the most high God. You are deeply loved. You are deeply cherished. You have been made holy by his grace, by his mercy that has been showered down upon you. The person who walks in the most freedom is the person who has the most confidence that they are loved by their Heavenly Father. 
Not because of anything that they've earned. Not because they can check so many boxes or say that they've gone so long without whatever fill in the blank. That's not it. We, we feed on the reality that we are loved simply because we are called children of the Most High God. If you're struggling with lust, we have to remember that you are loved. And remind yourself of that again and again and again. So what do we do? You know, one of the best spiritual disciplines you can embrace if you're struggling with lust is fasting. Because we remind our soul that our body doesn't control us. We start to rewire the parts of our brain and, and say, no, I don't need that. I can feed on something a little bit different. I want to pray for us this morning. I want, to, I want to pray really in a hope-filled way. My goal isn't to stir up the pot or, or make anyone ridden with guilt. I want freedom for all of us. I want us to experience the joy and the freedom that the author and the perfecter of who we are, uh, who we have been made to be, the creator of our lives has destined us to be. Maybe the story, your story, has pain and maybe it has brokenness. But can I encourage you this morning that it is because of the blood of Jesus he can cleanse and it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit he can make you alive again. And he can change the direction that you are in. It might mean that you need some help to, to not white-knuckle this thing on your own. It might mean bringing to light things that have been in the darkness. And I know that that can oftentimes bring fear and anxiety. But I know that you know that it's not been working the other way. Almost everyone in this room, I would bet, has been affected by this. At some point in your life, one way or another, there's been a point of pain or regret. And can we just agree now the truth of the scripture that says that God can take that and send it as far as the east is from the west. That it, it no longer has to be a burden that you bury, that, that you carry. No longer has to be a thing that you hide in the shadows of your soul. Let's be a community that works toward cheering one another on in love and in good deeds and upholds what Jesus has called us to uphold so that we have something to offer this world that is actual salt and light, <laughs> is actually something that's different, something that flavors the world in which we live in. His word is truth, and can we live that out in our life? Let's pray.